All right, well, if you'll open up the word to Acts chapter 22. We're just going to glance at Acts chapter 22, and we're going to fast forward into Acts chapter 26. But if you'll start in chapter 22 with me, that'd be helpful. Message this morning, I'm titling it, Four Words and Our Hope in the Shadow of Harm. Four words and our hope in the shadow of harm. And I want to go back to the passage we looked at last week outside of the book of Acts inspired by the spirit of God given through the apostle Peter in first Peter chapter three, just, and then Paul's going to demonstrate this passage to us. That's why I want us to see it. It's what we're called to live out. So there's a mandate on each one of us in this passage, but Paul is going to be a living demonstration for this. What does this passage look like? Well, Paul's about to demonstrate it for us. So we saw a little bit last week, first Peter chapter three, verse 13 Peter says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Let me just qualify something here. If you're not familiar with the Bible and you see the term good in it, be very careful what you think that means. Good in the Bible is not a relative term. It's not a moralistic term either. It's not a a term that describes you being better than somebody else. It's not a term that describes you having moral fibers to your life. It's a term that describes your being in agreement with the perfect living God. So this is not about, hey, I'm just zealous for helping people out. I like to help people. I'm nice. No, 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 no. This is zealous for what brings glory to God. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Well, Father, as we open your word, and we look at how you unfolded these verses in the life of a man named Paul. Lord, would you transfer this living word into our hearts? Would you transform our souls? Would you give us eagerness to experience this word in our own lives? In Jesus' name, amen. We said last week, Acts, I'm going to kind of pick up pieces of the next four chapters, and we're just going to kind of weave our way through them. So we're not going to strictly go verse by verse through Acts 22 all the way to Acts chapter 26, because it's a a unique time frame. It's about a two-year period. All those chapters are about two years. It's the Apostle Paul having some some rough times. This, This is certainly Paul in the shadow of harm. He's going to be accused, falsely accused in many ways. He's going to be rightly accused in some ways. He certainly is preaching something that got people's attention. He's going to spend time in jail. Numerous court appearances are going to occur in his life. And he's going to make quite a bit of the use of the word defense. As we looked last week, Paul defended himself and his integrity. But he's going to defend his message as well. We're going to look a little bit more at that this week. But 
Paul lived what Peter was describing. Who is there to harm you? Right, This looming sense of the shadow of harm was in Paul's life. And, and it's in our lives as well. Now, we're not Paul, and so don't, don't, don't so disconnect from the first century person to say, well, my life is not like the Apostle Paul. No, it isn't. It isn't. But we all live in the shadow of harm. Because what was true for Paul is still true for us. Paul experienced this clash of darkness and light. Out there in the world, in the environment that we live in, there's darkness and there's light. There's these spiritual forces that shape and move and motivate people. And Paul lived in the shadow of that clash. And so darkness and light occurred. And next thing you know, when that clash occurred, people were enraged. They took Paul outside to the edge of the city and they beat him and they stoned him. They left him for dead. People, people can get pretty hot over darkness and light. Sometimes, sometimes we're not recognizing that, right? We're dealing with people who it's not so much that you did something that really lit them up. It's that darkness and light is lighting them up. They're living in this world with this contention that they don't like anybody bringing the light into what's darkness for them and making them feel the awkwardness of it. And you made me feel awkward by what you said. You presented some message that conflicts with where I'm at. So there's, there's harm that wants to come out of people's lives when that happens. Paul lived, as we looked a good bit last week, in the shadow of the harm of friendly fire. You know, it'd be great. You know, don't amen this too loud. It's a little insulting to everybody in the room. But wouldn't it be great if the only people who harmed you were non-Christians? Wouldn't that be awesome? If you never got shot in the back? <laughs> well, there is this thing called friendly fire. And we looked last week at Paul's life. Paul, a man who lived for the glory of God and the power of the gospel sacrificially, amazingly, like no one else did. If there was, if there was ever a guy you should never take a shot at, it was the apostle Paul. The guy's just one stinking, inspiring story after another. But yet in, in Corinth and in other places... Paul comes under fire. It's amazing that even in the church, go ahead and release yourself from this. You you will never live the Christian life perfect enough to not get shot in the back by another Christian. Can I just tell you that? If the apostle Paul couldn't pull it off, you're not going to pull it off. Somebody's going to not like something about how you do that, how you said that. And, And listen, I ain't nowhere near in the league with the Apostle Paul. So I'm thinking, oh, if he was shot as many times as he was, good night. My, I got to be filled with arrows up and down my back. Oops. Oops. Another one. All right, well, that's going to happen. And, and, and you guys know this. That sometimes can feel like some of the most harmful moments, can it? The people you never thought would shoot you have shot you. The people you're close to. I'd rather be shot 10 times by the darkness and light people out there than once by the people you're close with, right? That's harm. We live in the shadow of harm. Uh, Paul lived in the shadow of the harm of a stressful life. Paul's life was not an easy life by any means. And when I use the word stressful, I don't mean like, oh, Paul was freaking out. He was stressful. Oh, freaking out. I mean, Paul doesn't seem to be freaking out. 
But his life was filled with weighty stuff. And weighty stuff produces stress in your life. I mean, at some point, stress can show up in your life physically. You go to your doctor and the doctor might highlight, you know, it's the, it's the pace of your life. It's the pressure you're under. Those are realistic things. And, you know, look at Paul's life, the pace that he lived. The difficulty of living in the first century with technology the way it was, the travel that he did. I mean, you're getting on a ship. I don't know if he had seasick issues, but man, the dude was on a ship a good bit. If I, you know, I don't know if I had been called to be the apostle in the first century, uh, the gospel would have been much slower getting where it needed to go. Cause I'm not getting on a ship. Those things toss. I mean, I, th- I went on a, I went deep sea fishing once at about 12 years old and I swore I'm never ever going out in the open water again. You know, you get deep sea fishing. This is like a, it's like a horror experiment. You get on this boat, you don't know how sick you're going to get, and you have no idea how many times you can throw up. And you're on, a, you're on a boat that can't be turned around. There's like 40 other people on this thing, you know, dipping into the ocean, getting fish out of it. And you're like, no, 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 you don't understand. I can't stay out here all day. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm really sorry. And then they try to give you suggestions like, here, have a Sprite. Oh, great. Just so I can see that after I drank it, that's an awesome suggestion. And then nothing works. You know, it's like, well, go, why don't you go below deck? Somebody's saying, oh, yeah. And then there's, we'll stare out at the horizon. Nothing works, all right? Turn the boat around. That'll work for me. But anyway, Paul, you know, Paul's traveling by boat. He's probably throwing up all over the place. Paul's got financial issues. He needs support. Where's his money coming from? He had economic pressures. Paul had leaders in the first century that, you know, yesterday they were one thing. Now today you're leading the body of Christ. You imagine how many questions they had. How do we do this? Where do we go next? What do we share, Paul? I don't quite know if I understand the doctrine. You share it this way or that way. And Paul sat underneath the weight of all that. So, so Paul lived in the shadow of harm. And this passage for Peter informs us that the shadow of harm may include suffering, right? Who's there to harm you in verse 14? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, even if you do suffer, you will be blessed. So here's an upside down principle in the kingdom of God. You know, when, when I wake up in the morning, there's something in me that says, avoid suffering at all costs today, right? That's, that's what I'm programmed to do. Right? I've, I've set my, you know, my electronic device to tell me how long it will take me to get into work using the route that I use. You know why I do that? Because if there's traffic, I'm going a different way. I don't want to suffer with bumper to bumper traffic. That's suffering for me. So I don't want to suffer that way. I'm going to find a different route. So I'm programmed to avoid suffering at all costs. But the Bible doesn't sound that way. It says, you know what? Even if you do suffer, you will be blessed. Well, I'm convinced that the blessing is in finding a quicker route through life, whatever it is. I'm convinced of that. But in scripture, that's upside down. You actually often are going to experience blessing in suffering, not by avoiding it, which is an amazing thing. It really frees us quite a bit. But Paul is a man in the throes of suffering. Paul is a man in the shadow of harm, but yet Paul is a man experiencing hope in a way that I want to, I want to experience hope the way this man had 
hope. Right? Paul, when you visit him throughout his life, he's, Paul's, Paul's motivated, right? So when you lack hope, you lack motivation, don't you? Paul's a motivated man. He, he's not a morose man. Paul's engaging with people. He's not withdrawn. Right? Paul is eager and anticipating, even though he knows that there's a mix of some real difficulty ahead. Because Paul had a hope that was in him, and he's about to give a defense to it, to that hope in just a moment. But hope is a powerful thing. In fact, I I could think if I could trade to have anything always active inside of me, I think I'd trade just about anything to have hope in me. That sense of there's hope in me, always operating in me. That's not not my story. I, I want it to be my story. But it's not my story. There'll be plenty of moments where I don't look like hope is operating in me. Uh, and that's unfortunate. Hopefully today will help me as well as help you. If you look for a definition for hope, in the English language, it's a little bit weak. It says a feeling that something desirable is likely to happen. All right, that's what hope is defined in the English language. A feeling that something desirable is likely. It's possible. It's likely even to happen. But it's a little stronger than that. In the Greek language, the word in the Greek, it means favorable and confident expectation, right? So it's, it's not just a little likeliness. This is, this is confident expectation. It is hope describes the happy anticipation of good, right? I'm in the moment and I have this happy anticipation of good. I'm I'm so expecting it and anticipating that it is altering my mood. That's hope, right? It's the difference between how you feel on Friday and how you feel on Monday morning. You know what I'm saying? Because on Friday, and I remember feeling this way in, in high school, especially, there was something to look forward to. I loved Friday, even though on Friday I had to still go to school. I loved Friday more than I loved Saturday because there was more to look forward to on Friday than there was on Saturday. You'd already spent some of it. And then Sunday, kind of starting to lose it a little bit. Monday morning, I hated. I hated Monday morning. Because it's like, well, there's nothing to look forward to. It's just the sad reality of a fallen world. That's what, that's what Monday felt like for me. But Friday, there's something to look forward to. You know, it's like the last day at work before you go on a two-week vacation. Right? I mean, what's your mood like? You haven't even experienced vacation yet, but you are confident that this is about to happen. And who kind of, you know, skipping the step here. Got a good mood going on at work today. It's Friday. Now, how do you feel about the last day of your vacation? It's almost like depressing, isn't it? (laughs) Being like, when we're about to point the car and go back home from vacation, it's kind of like, when will we ever do this again? It's like, I've got nothing to look forward to now. All right, well, this is what this word is like. It is, a, it is an ability to look forward with expectation. And that's what Paul does. But what exactly was Paul's hope? What really was he hoping in? What was, was Paul hopeful just because he was, he was just an optimist? If you met Paul, that's his personality. His mom would say, oh, he was always that way. You know, Paul. He's kind of that half glass full kind of guy. He wakes up in the morning and you hate him because he's in such a good mood, reading the newspaper, chugging down some orange juice, ready to go. Uh, I don't think that's the kind of hope he's talking about. By the way, for all of you people who have those kinds of issues, 
Some of us cannot relate to you, okay? I don't wake up in the morning like, oh, where's my ice skates? <laughs> uh, I don't know. There's something hormonally about me that that's not morning for me. And then night's not bad, but morning, no. So if you are that way, you know, don't impose that junk on the rest of us, okay? <laughs> Just go off by yourself, read your newspaper, be happy, and give us a chance to wake up. All right. Acts chapter 22. Here, here Paul, I'm just going to skim through this real quickly. Paul is, is brought before the mob, right? This is a mob. This is a mob in Jerusalem. Paul's got to give an account for the hope that is in him. He's going to explain why it is he believes what he believes and what this hope is. And you'll see how he starts this. And we're going to fast forward in just a second. Look in verse 22. I'm verse two, I'm sorry. It says, when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I I persecuted this way. I was against this Christianity, this belief in this Jesus of Nazareth. I, I, I get you guys. I'm one of you. But that all changed. Right? Verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you? And he has this encounter with Christ that's going to redefine his life. Remember, he's blinded and he, he goes into Damascus and he finds a man named Ananias. And God's purpose in Paul continues. Now, fast forward to Acts 26. Here's Paul in another setting. This is probably almost a couple of years later now. It's later in his life. He's, he was in Jerusalem with the mob. Now he's in Caesarea, about 60 miles away. He's been spending time in jail. And he's called before the new governor, Festus, who's the new Roman governor. Festus is, is, is making political connections. He's called King Agrippa, who's a Jewish king. You know, it's kind of like the Romans put up with local leaders, right? So he's a Jewish king underneath the Roman emperor, right? So he's got some little territory that he's responsible for. But he's in submission, if you will, to the, to the Roman governor who represents the emperor. So Festus is saying, you know, it'd be smart for me to make some political connections here. And I don't really get this Paul guy. And I got to send him to, to, to Rome. And I don't understand what his deal is. And I got to write something up here and send it to Caesar so that Caesar will meet with this guy. This will be great. I'll call King Agrippa over. He's a Jew. He kind of knows and understands his Jewish issues that this guy's going through and what he says. I'll call him over and having Paul give an account to him, and I'll get to better understand this. So that's what's happening in Acts chapter 26, verse 2. All right, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. He said, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth 
spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, right? Be careful to pay attention to that because Paul's hope is nothing new. That's what he's banking on that Agrippa's going to recognize. I'm not telling you anything new. You already know all this. But my hope is in it. Verse 7. To which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Wait, this, this is, let me just stop on this. I don't have time to chase all these, but there, there's a massive debate going on today in intellectual circles about believing in the supernatural, believing in the existence of God, believing that miracles have ever occurred, could have ever occurred, that a God could raise anyone from the dead, et cetera, et cetera. And I scratch my head right alongside of Paul here because there were folks in this meeting who thought this raising the dead thing, that's what kills it for us. You have all these Sadducees, you have a different sect of the Jewish people saying, we can't go with what you're saying because of this raising the dead thing. Well, why is that? Because man stands and looks at what he's capable of doing and then says, since we can't do that, no one can do it. Really? Is that what you believe about your existence, that you are the apex. You're the top predator on the list here. If you can't do it, no one can do it. Well, what if there's a God who's greater than you? And these people did believe in God. That's the crazy thing for them. They believed in God. Well, if you believe that there's a God and he created everything and he controls everything, do you really believe it's all that challenging for him to raise someone from the dead? Really, that's, that's hard for you to imagine? If God is greater than we are, even though we can't do it, it's certainly believable that he can. Verse 9 says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which we which which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Let me just stop and put a little asterisk and we'll come back in two weeks. We're going to come back and look at conversion, Paul's conversion, what conversion means. But this is interesting. You just have Paul scratching his head. He's opposed Christ. He doesn't believe in this carpenter from Nazareth. Give me a break. And he's violently opposing anybody who's forwarding that message to anybody else. He asked one question of Jesus Christ, who are you? And Jesus goes on to say, without any question of uncertainty, Paul, this is what you're going to do. Anybody here think that there's a little room for negotiation? Just a moment ago, Paul wanted nothing to do with you. He was against you. How do you know he's going to go along with this, Jesus? How can you be so sure that Paul's going to say, yeah, I'm good for that. I know he's not going to say, no, not doing that. Don't you believe in the free will of man? Pretty, pretty amazing that Jesus doesn't for a moment question whether this man is going to do exactly what he's been appointed to do. You've been appointed to do this. Not, hey, I'm here to, to reason with you to see if I can get you to do this. Would you be willing to do that? There's no negotiating going on here. The Lord of the universe has just shown up in this man's life and said, you're appointed to this. Oh, and guess what? If I read the rest of the story, Paul does exactly what he was appointed to do. And this, this is not about our hope is in people like Paul. Our hope is in the God who appoints and accomplishes his ends. Verse 17. I'm going to appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Listen, this is the mission that he's about to be on. To open their ears so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is Paul's mission statement if you will. But I, I want to I put it in the category of this is what brings hope. This is what brought hope to Paul. This is what Jesus did in coming to Paul. He did these things to Paul. Paul is now being sent to go and do these things in the lives of others. And so I, I want to I sit us down here in this passage just for a moment to see if, if you and I are going to have hope, these three things must be our story, right? One, our eyes must be open. Hope needs to see something. Hope needs to see something. If you're going to experience hope, if it's gonna be this anticipation, this expectation in your life, you've gotta see something. Paul needed to see something in the spirit. But now, now this, is, this is the real challenge. Because if you read the biblical diagnosis of man, you find out man seeing things is a really hard thing. It's a really hard thing. When sin came into this world, this disease, it genetically, if you will, if I can say it that way, spiritually altered man. This disease of sin came into our existence and, and it severed 
the spiritual optic nerve of our lives. So now the Bible no longer describes us as seeing. It describes us as blind. Everybody is described as blind. So go with me because this is a little bit of a challenge here, isn't it? How is Paul going to see if the spiritual optic nerve in his life has been severed and he doesn't have eyes to see? God's going to have to do a miracle for this man to see. Listen, don't walk away from here thinking Paul saw because he was Paul. Paul saw because he was learned and studied and eager and pursuing. No, no, no. Do do you know this Saul on the road to Damascus? He's convinced of the wrong thing. He's on his way to murder God's people. He's opposing Jesus Christ. Do you think Paul was seeing? He was blind as a bat. Living for the wrong thing, furthering the wrong cause. And I find it really interesting here for Paul to see in the spirit, God blinds him in the natural. That might be a little informing for all of us, right? You know, we're walking around. I think most of us, this is a story of our life. I'm on, the, I'm on my road to Damascus to accomplish what I think needs to get accomplished in life and live life a certain way in this world. And it's like God needs to blind me so that I can see in the spirit. So this miracle takes place. And God gives sight to this blind man. And he suddenly sees. This is why why Jesus knew you're going to do exactly what I say. Because you see me now. You didn't see me before. You didn't understand me before. You're asking the question. And it's the right question. Who are you? So first thing that's got to happen for us to have hope is is revelation's got to come into our life. We've got to see something. Second thing. As Paul is told, he's going to go and he's going to turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. People are going to turn. This is is the, the biblical terminology of repentance. Hope, if there's going to be hope in our lives, needs a new motivation. Hope needs to see something. Hold on to these three things with me. Hope needs to see something and hope needs a new motivation. What was the old motivation? Darkness was the old motivation. The things of darkness, the pleasures of darkness, the ways of darkness, the, the allegiance that we had. If you guys can remember this, I can remember being a non-Christian, making fun of those televangelist people style, people who believe this kind of crazy garbage ridiculousness, and then getting saved. And all of a sudden, everything that I was hostile to, I was friends with. People who went to churches like this, in my family, they were called holy rollers. And so, yeah. So when I got saved and started going to a church like this, that's what my, my mom, oh, you've gone and turned holy roller on us. She, I don't know how many times she told me that. And then she'd tell me the story. She grew up in backwoods, Mississippi. That was that church on the other side of town. They were preaching and singing and who was going on and they were rolling around on the floor. They were holy rollers. And when I growing up, I thought those people are freaks and kooks and 
taking this Jesus stuff way too far. And then my eyes got opened and I saw, and I just became weird like everybody else. And it was normal. It's like, yeah, that's, that's what you do. I was like, everything that I thought was stupid before, all of a sudden I was, I was all right. And you know what God does in that is he's, he's breaking our allegiances to darkened ideas in our lives. And so next week, two weeks from now, we talk about conversion. I'll come back to this point more clearly. But there's, there's a breaking of our partnership with darkness. We were in partnership with darkness. We were motivated by the power of Satan. I don't know that sounds hooky spooky. No, listen, when this passage talks about the power of Satan, this, this is not a Halloween passage, all right? This isn't like, ooh, yeah, I saw some really scary horror movie growing up. This is not horror movie stuff. I think those things do such a wonderful job of keeping you from ever seeing who Satan really is. The new motivation is to be turned from the power of Satan. Go go back to Satan's original play. What was the power of Satan? It goes on display in Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember? When you eat of this tree that God told you not to eat, your eyes, your eyes, you, your eyes will be open and you will be as God. All right, no deal here. This is not like uh, you will wear horns and draw a pentagram on the ground and slice your arm open and put blood somewhere. The devil would love to make you think that's what he's about. He didn't talk at all about him. He said, this will be good for you. This will serve you. This will further you. This will benefit you. That's why you should do it. He didn't say anything about himself. It's all about you. Of course, you know the rest of the story. So when the woman saw, when the woman, she did what? She saw. You see, revelation is needed even when you're going to do the wrong thing. You got to see something to put your hope in the wrong place too. When the woman saw, better than when she was deceived, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit. What did she see in that? She saw a lot of self-benefit. That's what she saw. If I do this, I'm going to improve my lot. If I do this, it's going to benefit me. That's the power of Satan right there. That's the power that Satan wielded over Eve. Self-pleasure at the expense of God's glory. Welcome to your allegiance question. What are you allied with? Are you in this world for self-pleasure or for God's glory? Well, if Eve was in this world for God's glory, she'd have just honored the word of God and obeyed it and said, I would rather be found obeying God without knowing anything of what you're describing to me than find the pleasures of my own hidden wisdom and abilities. But she didn't do that, right? She gave in. But that is what the power of Satan is. So repentance is about turning from self-motivated pleasure to God-glorifying pleasure. So if you want to have hope, these two things so far have got to happen. One, hope needs to see something. Second, hope needs a new motivation. It cannot continue to be self-pleasure as the motivation of our lives. Last thing, hope needs to feel restored. So there is revelation, there's repentance, and there's restoration or redemption. 
Jesus said to Paul, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what you're going to receive. You're going to be restored to the place where there's no longer a wall between you and God. You're no longer a stranger to God. Your sins have been forgiven and you're part of God's family. That's what that means. You're going to receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. Listen, there is an urgency, a drive us nuts factor inside of us. We want to belong. All the talks on peer pressure, all the culture issues. It's because we want to belong to something. Because God made us to belong. God made us to belong to him. And if I don't get that right, I will never have hope. Not the way Paul's describing. Right, so you want, these, you want hope in your life? All right, those three things. Hope needs to see something. Hope needs a new motivation. And hope needs to receive restoration. You don't have those three things, then I promise you, you don't have hope. All right, but let me, let me look at what Paul believed here. Let's read a little further in this passage. Paul believed something. Hope believes something. Hope always believes something, doesn't it? So if you want to have hope today, you got to be believing something. Now, is, is that a good thing that we're believing? Look in verse 19. He's going to explain what it is that he believed. Verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. That's a great statement. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. I'm not saying anything new. This is not a new religion. I'm just saying what's always been said. King Agrippa, you know this. I'm saying what, the, what Moses said. I'm saying what the prophets of old said. Verse 23. Well, what did they say? That the Christ, you underline in your Bible, there's two of our words. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Here is the basis of Paul's belief. He believes something about the Christ. Those two words. And when you look through, and I'll race through this real fast just so you see it. New Testament preaching was about that point. What Paul had as a message when he showed up anywhere was about the Christ. That's his message. Look real quickly at those passages there. Acts 5.42 it says, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That's what they didn't ever stop doing. Acts chapter 9, we pick up all the rest of this as Paul. Acts 9, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Acts 17. And Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ 
to suffer and to rise from the dead saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Acts 18 verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Acts 18, 28, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now question, who, better question is, what is the Christ? Let me just tell you what, it's not. It's not Jesus' last name. Now, now I'm shocking some of you, aren't I? You know, you had Joseph Christ and Mary Christ and Jesus Christ and one big happy family. It's, it's not a name. It's a title. It's a title that existed before Jesus of Nazareth walked on this earth. It's very different, right? I mean, it'd be really awkward for me to say, uh, you know, I say, I have a name, Keith Collins. You know, the Collins is Keith. That would, that would sound, you wouldn't know what to do with that, right? Keith is the Collins. <laughs> because my name is a name. It's not a title. This is a title. And if you're going to understand who Jesus is and how he touches your life with hope, you have to understand why was there a person with a title? See, in scripture... The Christ means the anointed one. The one who is appointed for a particular task. So this message that Paul had, the message he said, it's not new, it's not mine, it's what Moses and the prophets all said. It's the basis for our hope. Jesus is the Christ. That's the four words. That was Paul's message that brought hope into his life. Jesus is the Christ. He said, I'm on trial for the hope that's in me. Let me tell you what that hope is. It's not a new message. It's the message that's always been here. The Christ, the Christ, the Christ. I'm just here to, to clarify one little detail. The Christ is Jesus. That's what he was trying to say. And this is what's really exciting, right? You see in your outline there, Genesis chapter three. This source of hope goes all the way back, all the way back to the first appearance of the shadow of harm, right? The garden of Eden was a great place. It was a beautiful place. Adam and Eve weren't walking around in the cool of the day with the living God in the garden with anything that sounded like first Peter chapter three. If there's anybody to harm you, there's trouble and trial. Don't be afraid. They knew nothing of that. Nothing of being afraid of anything. Everything made sense. It was all in its place. It was just good after good after good after good. Everything smelled good, tasted good, timing was good. They were never late. It was perfect. Until the power of Satan showed up in the garden. You remember after the fall, God pronounces his judgments upon the serpent, upon the woman, and upon the man. Now listen carefully to this judgment. Genesis 3, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
he, singular individual, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who is this? You jumped ahead in the story. It's not Jesus. It's the Christ. It's the appointed one. It's the one who's going to reverse what just got accomplished in Genesis chapter 3. Listen, without question, when the fall came, it flipped everything upside down. Everything about our existence, everything about humanity got thrust into the realm of suffering and pain and dysfunction and brokenness. This, this is where it all began, right? The garden was good and perfect, communing with God, enjoying the creation he made until another motive came into the hearts of man. The motive of self-pleasure. Eve, you can improve your lot. You can have it better than what you have right now. And she fell for it and plunged us into the fall. But as soon as that happened, Bible actually would say even before it happened, God makes known, I've appointed one to fix all that. All that you just did, all that the serpent just tempted and you just pulled off, I have appointed the Christ. The anointed one will come and he will fix all these things. There's a little hint of how he's going to fix it later in chapter 3 in Genesis verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Right? Their life had become suddenly very uncomfortable. Before they were naked and unashamed. They, they were, you know, nakedness is not just a, a sense of flesh here. It, it's, a, it's a sense of knowing me fully. And Adam and Eve knew one another fully and there was no hiding, there was no shame. There was no, if you just knew my past, I don't want you to know me. I don't like, don't look and peer into my soul like that. I don't like that. Right, you understand that that feels uncomfortable for some of us? Oh, if people in this room right now knew everybody's story, how would they feel about you? Okay, none of that was happening in the garden until sin came in and then it was happening all over them. And they know what to do and what to hide and how to cover up. And God in his mercy covers them in skins. Where do you get the skins? J.C. Penny? <laughs> no, J.C. Penny's in the garden. But there were living animals who were really, really alive and doing fine right before God removed the skins from them. What happened to those animals? Their blood was shed and the innocent ones died. And their skins covered the shame of another. You see God trying to show us anything right there? That for your shame to get covered, it's going to take the life of another laid down for you. It's going to take the Christ who's going to fix all that just happened in the garden. Right, when you get into Acts Chapter 3, it says, verse 17, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ, his appointed one, would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away 
in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's restoration. That's being restored to the living presence of God that had been severed in the garden. Now, times of refreshing can come. Verse 20, and that he may send Jesus the Christ, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. When Paul had to give a defense for why he lived his life this way, he says, I'm on trial for the hope, not a new hope, but the hope that's been around forever. He described for us where it was that his hope was located. Why did Paul have the hope that he had? Because of where he put it. He put it in the Christ. He put it in the Christ is Jesus. That's, that's where his hope, his faith, his belief was vested. Now, <clears throat> question for us, what is your hope in, in this world? Right? When you gaze into the future, remember hope wants to have a sense of confident expectation that there's something desirable that lies ahead for me. That's what hope wants to have. And every one of us wants that. I want to gaze into the future and say, I got something to look forward to. I want vacation to be coming. I want the weekend to be here. I, I want to look at life spiritually and see the same kind of a thing in the spirit for me. To see that I see something that I'm anticipating the good of it. What, what is it that you are looking into the future and saying, I'm hoping for that? Right? It's very tempting to misplace our hope, isn't it? It's very tempting for us to be sitting here this morning freaking out because we have a hope in something that we're not quite sure that we can be confident about it. And sometimes it looks really, really sketchy. I don't think that's going to happen. It's very tempting to put our hope in our education in this country, especially. That if I get a good education, I get the right kind of degree, I'll get the right kind of job, and like a domino effect, everything else will fall in place for me and I'll have a good life. Right, let me just do an experiment here real quick. All right, for everybody here who's got a, a college degree, now don't raise your hand just yet. I want to make clear on the question. My first question is, how many of you are using your college degree in your career right now? All right, you ready? All right, raise your hand if you are using your college degree in your career right now. Put your hand down. See, this is why I didn't ask the question because I knew you'd have English teachers who are sitting in the room as pastors thinking they're using their degree. No, I'm an engineer. That's what I have a degree in, right? Uh, apart from goofy illustrations, I'm not using my degree, right? My parents spent all that money. No, it doesn't count when you just correct everybody's grammar. That doesn't count. I know your references. I used to be a teacher. Okay, used to be is the operative word. You used it at some point, but you don't use it anymore. All right, how many guys are in a career that you're not using your degree? Let's see your hands. All right, pretty good number. All right, I'm not, I'm not saying that to discourage young people. I'm like, oh, well, then why get a degree? <laughs> uh, but, you know, it is a good question. <laughs> um, But it's tempting to put a lot of hope in our education. It's tempting to put hope in a relationship that's going to make me feel like I belong, that I'm connected, 
that this person is, is in my life in a way that makes me feel validated and important and I matter. It's very tempting to put your hope, but, but you do recognize the second you do that, you put your hope in something that's very shaky, right? Your education. I mean, if people get great degrees, can't get a good job. There's economic factors that make your degree obsolete. That was a great degree when I got it, but geez, man, now ain't nobody wants that anymore. Things change, blah, blah, blah. There's people and relationships in your life that they're fragile. They're going to break. People are going to die. They're going to leave you and not be loyal to you. And these are the places that we're tempted to put our hope. Listen, the fall catapulted us into this unsettled, unsafe, threatening, unaccepting environment. This is what we live in. This is why our life feels the way it feels. And so to get hope going in a setting like that is a really hard thing to do unless your hope is where Paul's hope was. In four little words, the Christ is Jesus. That's his hope. Now, let me think this through with me for a second. Well, why does that matter so much? Let me just look at a couple things you're saying when you say the Christ is Jesus. This is what you're saying. First, the Christ, you're saying that there is a promised one, that there is a promised one because there is a plan. God had a plan to overthrow all the brokenness in the fall. God put together a plan to fix all that sin disrupted and harmed. So when I say the Christ, I'm acknowledging that there's a plan. I'm saying that I understand why the world and my life is broken. When I say the Christ... I'm saying I understand why the world is broken. Well, why does there need to be a redeemer? Why does there need to be a rescuer? That's what the Christ is. He's the one appointed to come rescue us. Well, well, who needs to be rescued? People in trouble need to be rescued. So why is there a rescuer? Because I'm in danger and you're in danger. I'm in the danger that sin describes. I'm in the danger of living what Paul was supposed to go rescue people from with the gospel, the power of darkness and the power of Satan. You understand the evil in this world? Listen, Christians should be the last ones to be so naive to be staring at the world and going, man, I can't, what? People are doing some wrong things, huh? What? How can you believe in the Christ and not believe in brokenness? Does that make sense? got a big belief in the rescuer, the rescuer, the rescuer is coming. Is anybody drowning? Well, you know, I'm not really sure. I think people are pretty good in general, don't you? Well, then why do you need a rescuer? Why does the Christ need to come unless we're broken? And you read the news headlines and you find out, wow, people are really, really broken. People are self-motivated in darkness under the power to advance their own cause. And listen, don't get lost in this ISIS situation thinking, oh, this is, this is like religious civil war. No, this is, this is hoodlums advancing their cause. This is, this is not about advancing some belief. This is about who's going to be in power. And if you understood something about the Sunnis and the Shiites, you'd understand why they're killing each other. It's a battle for power over that belief system. It's a battle for somebody to control somebody else. This is nothing new. Why, why do we, just last century, have guys like Adolf Hitler running around? 
Why was there a Nazi regime that sought to take over the world? It wasn't because of religious beliefs. It was because somebody wanted to advance their own lot at the expense of others. And listen, that's the big news items. But why, why, is there, why was there a policeman down the street at your house breaking up a domestic violence situation? Why did the couple who used to live across the street from you get a divorce? Because of the power of darkness and the power of Satan to tempt people to believe that there's a way for you to get what you want and further your own cause. That's the power of darkness. When I say the Christ, I'm saying that I believe that brokenness doesn't have the last word in this world or in my life. The Christ does. The plan of God has the last word in my life and in this world. I'm saying that I believe in the promises of God, even while I'm standing in the shadow of harm. Everybody who picked up a Bible and ever quoted anything about the Christ was standing in the shadow of harm. But saying, but the Christ will fix all this. That's what I'm saying, I believe. The Christ is Jesus. A real man who at one point came and inaugurated and did all that needed to be fulfilled. Really walked the earth, known as a guy named Jesus of Nazareth. This isn't a theory. In the Old Testament, you could say it's a theory. It's a theory. We have the theory of the Christ. We have the possibility. We think, we believe there's coming one day a Messiah. Paul's message is not, who hope that's still true. No, Paul's message is, it's the same message. What you guys have missed is what I missed is that the Christ is Jesus. It's done. He's already come. He's inaugurated everything that's going to be. And he has quite a resume to prove that he is the Christ. But that, well, here's what's interesting. And this is an interesting quote for you to read with me here. James Allen Francis bit of an essay that got turned into a poem at some point, but this is a thought from his essay. And it, it, is, it is puzzling. It is puzzling why 2,000 years later, a bunch of Americans in a totally different culture, live, dress, operate life differently, are sitting here this morning talking about Jesus Christ. I don't want to read this quote to you. You're going to really scratch your head as to why are we doing that again? Here's a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, just three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying. And that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone. And today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. 
I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that were ever built and all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Explain to me why with those credentials, you and I are still talking about that man. Why aren't we here talking about Napoleon, for goodness sake? Stalin had more power and a bigger following, didn't he? Listen, in a hundred years, your, kid, your great-grandchildren or so are going to wonder, right, who was Adolf Hitler again? The man turned the world on its ear and he's going to be forgotten. Most of you couldn't tell me hardly anything about Attila the Hun. You know about this guy named Napoleon, but you know, other than being a little dessert that you eat, what can you tell me about Napoleon? the guy who almost ruled the world for the France. There won't be any gatherings like this for Napoleon a hundred years from now. There aren't any today, but they will still gather for Jesus Christ. Do you know why that is? Because he's the Christ. He's the one. He's the rescuer. He's the one in God's plan that from the moment sin entered into the world, there was a plan in place for the Christ to come and fix it. And he would fix it all. And that's who Paul was hoping in. When I say the Christ is Jesus, I'm saying that in Jesus, God has inaugurated his kingdom coming. And all that has been promised is in the process of being fulfilled. It's it's in the process of being fulfilled. Don't make the mistake of thinking that it's all completely done. No, no, no. It's in the process of being fulfilled. Jesus was the ultimate step, but not the final step in that process. I'm saying that harm has never been the scriptwriter for anyone whose faith is in God. That's what I'm saying. Eric, you can come back up here. I know, listen, you and I, we live in the shadow of harm. Our lives feel broken. Relationships don't work. Our physical bodies have issues. It feels like the script of our life is being written by some evil, sinister plot, some terrible fallen world reality. But to know this from the beginning, there has been this plan from God involving the Christ, the rescuer, the one who would come and make everything right, the come, one who would come and fix it. How, how do you have hope when stuff is broken in your life? Well, the promise that someone's coming to fix it, does that help? It does, doesn't it? If he's the right someone. You know, if I'm coming to fix one of your appliances, mm, sometimes I can fix them, but you know, there could be some circumstances I can't help you. Maybe you got a bad mechanic who's like that, but this is, this is not who Jesus is. He's the fixer. He's the one who fixes the brokenness of our lives. Now, I just want you to listen to this. And in just a moment, I'm going to give us a chance to respond. The Old Testament. Isaiah the prophet described the world's conditions in 
Isaiah chapter 60. It said, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And the description Isaiah gave of this broken world. He says, whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, forsaken and hated, right? That could be you this morning, right? This is what a fallen, broken world feels like. It feels like I'm forsaken and hated. He said, violence, violence will no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. But the fixer comes for those reasons because violence is heard in your land because devastation and destruction are in this world. And in this room, you and I have drank of this stuff in a variety of ways so that you're sitting here today and you're in touch with this story. You're in touch with the brokenness of destruction. Things don't work, do they? Things haven't worked in your life the way you'd hoped they would, the way you thought people would, and people have disappointed you and people have hurt you. And you face diagnosis you never thought that you'd have physically what's going on in your body. You and I live in a broken world. Where will you put your hope? You're going to transfer it from one location that's broken to another location that's broken to another location that's broken. Or are you going to transfer it to the rescuer, the fixer, the one who comes into this world to fix all that's broken in our lives? Right after Isaiah chapter 60 in this description, you'll recognize these words. Isaiah 61, 750 years before Jesus of Nazareth would reveal that he was the Christ. Chapter 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That's the Christ, the anointed one. To bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of the faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They will build up the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flock. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat of the wealth of the nations and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of shame... There shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have 
everlasting joy. Jesus picked up that passage to inaugurate his mission upon this earth in Luke chapter 4. And he said, today, that passage is fulfilled in your hearing. The Christ is me. The Christ is Jesus. I want you to think for a moment. You can stand up as you're doing this. Go ahead, stand up with me. If I just ask you a really simple question, how many of you would like to have hope? Maybe maybe I'd be smart to ask it better this way. Is there anybody in the room today who would not like to have hope? Can I see your one hand, please? Everybody wants to have hope. My question is, where are you going to get it? Where are you going to get hope? Paul defends his hope. Do you you want hope? Listen, I I hate the idea that people come to church with baggage and they leave with baggage. People come to church as wearied and broken and they leave weird and broken. Be serious. Do you want hope in your life? Well, you not, remember my three things. You're not going to have hope if you don't see something. You need to see something. Do you see the Christ? That God had a plan to fix everything that was broken. Do you see that? It's not a new idea. God said it from the moment bad and broken was initiated. He had a plan for the Christ, the rescuer to come. Do you see it? And more importantly, do you see that Jesus is the Christ? Well, it's not enough for you to just see it unless you're willing to turn to it. And listen, you told me a minute ago, you said you wanted to have hope. All right, my question is, are you willing to turn from darkness and from the power of Satan? I'm not talking about you're going to go home, put your pentagrams away. I'm talking about you're going to break the deal that Eve made with Satan in your own heart. That doing life your way apart from God's way is what's best for you. Are you willing to turn from that? Turn and believe that God has a plan for your life that's better than the plan you can have for your life. Are you willing to do that? Because listen, if you're not willing to do that, then you can't have hope. You can't have this hope. Unless you're willing to abandon the pursuit of pleasure and pursue the glory of God in your life, the reason you were created, you cannot have this hope. And you will continue to align your life with earthly broken pleasures. And you'll just pick up pleasure in this category and transfer it here. And that one's just as broken as this one was. And you can't have hope. If you want hope, you're going to have to break your allegiances and the deal you made with yourself to pursue life on your terms. And you're going to have to turn to Christ and put your hope in him. And then you get to receive that third thing, the forgiveness of sins in a place of belonging. Do you want to belong? God wants you to belong. That's why he sent the Christ, so you could belong. Listen, I know some of you in here have have made a decision 
like that already. You've put your hope in Christ. And maybe this just helped to remind you of that. But if you're here this morning and, and you've not done that, you've not put your hope in the Christ, the fixer, the restorer and deliverer and rescuer is Jesus and broken your ties with doing life your own way and now turning to him to do it for his glory. If you've not done that, can I ask you to do something really, really brave this morning? Come out from your seat and just, just come up forward here. And if you just would gather right here, I'm gonna send someone to pray with you because I want you to walk out of here with hope. This is the only way to get it. I can't make you feel good. I can't promise you that everything's going to come up roses. The economy's going to change. You're going to get a better job. I'll come up here and fix some of that. Listen, if you want hope, hope is available today. But you need to turn to hope. And you'll receive forgiveness of your sins and a belonging with God. Listen, if you came in here without hope, you know that. Whether you can smile at people's faces or not, if you walked in this place and you didn't have hope and you've not done this, do you really want to walk out here without hope? Well, I don't know that I want to walk to the front of a building in front of a bunch of people. Uh, Listen, in a few minutes, you're going to walk out here anyway and these people are all going to be gone. (laughs) They'll be gone from you. But the one thing you're going to drive away with is as much hopelessness as you drove here with. Don't do that. Don't do that. Make a serious decision to turn to Christ. The Christ is Jesus. And welcome him into your life and receive hope like the apostle Paul had in his life. Okay, anybody else want to come up and receive hope this morning? Let me pray for you. And as I'm praying, and then Eric's going to lead us and close us in song. If I'm praying, if you, everybody's going to close their eyes so you can sneak up here. <laughs> no one will see you. But I'm going to pray because it's, it's just, it's a grief of a thought that you walked in here without hope and you're going to walk out without hope too. Don't do it. Let's bow our heads. Lord, Lord, from the very start of life, Lord, you, you had a plan in place to fix what was broken. And Lord, we're here this morning and some of us know so much about the brokenness of our lives. Life hurts. It is painful. It's disappointing. It's hard. It's surprising. Lord, that's what got started in Genesis chapter 3. But Lord, what was as fast to start as that was the God who always had a plan to send a rescuer, a fixer of broken things. The Christ would come and he has come. And Lord, thank you that you've revealed yourself. Lord Jesus, you revealed yourself. You raised the dead, you healed the sick. You took power away from demonic forces. You preached the truth. You lived a perfect life. 
you died a sacrificial death and then you rose from the dead. Ah, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the rescuer. You're the one who fixes our broken world. God, this morning, our hope is in you. We share the hope with the apostle Paul. Our hope is in four little words. The Christ is Jesus.